Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 87, the best of 2014, coming up next on the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. This is the best of 2014. Oh, and don't let me forget, welcome to the new year of 2015. We're really excited to start this year off with the best of uh, from 2014. And also, we're excited that we're going to be live at more shows, just like we started doing in 2014. Well, I'm here by myself in in the studio. It's kind of lonely in here, uh, but... Soon, I'll be joined by many of our hosts and a special, a few special hosts also. Uh, this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to give you the best of 2014 that was voted on by our listeners and also the hosts of the show. So let's get started with the first episode that made the list, and that was Stuck Mike Avcast episode 66, How to Build an Instrument Approach with Russ Roslewski and Russ actually worked for FA Aeronav Products to design instrument approaches, and he has a ton of knowledge about procedures and and actually how they come about. So let's sit down and talk to Russ, and we'll uh, go over to the show, and I'll talk to you again uh, once we get to the next episode. So Russ, on these sure. procedures, where do you, how do you figure all this out? I mean, is there what's this document called that you're following for all the criteria for? The departure and uh, the arrivals. How do you how do you go about designing this approach to fit certain guidelines? Where are those guidelines? Well, the real Bible is eighty two sixty point three B. It's an FAA order. It's available for for download on the FAA website if anybody wants to take a, a casual look at it. But uh, it it gets into all this all the formulas, um, all of the um, the methods for calculating. Clearance to an obstacle, distances. Um, how wide is this protected area that you're you're evaluating? Uh, certainly on a NDB or a VOR, the the area is wider than on GPS. So it's it's got all those all those type of formulas, and it's a pretty uh, pretty thick document. But uh, that that's the main source there. So if someone was to come to you, like an airport authority, or say somebody with a private airport that wants to design an instrument approach, would it be good for them to go there first to try to figure out how to design the approach? Or would they just go to you or, or go to the FA and say, hey, we want this type of an approach? And you, I think you have the, the, yeah, the, really the, la- the last one is, is how it would work. I mean, I don't think anybody up there expects anybody who isn't up there to be an, an expert on, the, on all the formulas and such. Uh, when I moved out here, I was... Uh, I was actually fortunate to be able to help a local airport get a uh, get a new approach. So that they had found out that I did this kind of work, and the airport manager called me up one day and said, "Hey, uh, can you give us a hand?" Uh, so I got I got to see it from the other side, which was pretty interesting. And uh, yeah, it's uh, 
just request initiation of an approach. And like I said, the, uh, the regional office will work with the airport manager and, you know, and, and see what exactly you're looking for. And does it meet, does it meet a, a sanity check first? And then, uh, then it's handed off for the, the real in-depth evaluation. But we, when I helped on that project, we got to kind of suggest, Hey, we, you know, we'd like it to come from here. And, uh, you know, we'd like to keep it a straight in, not a circling approach, although it's a little bit of an angle. You know, we were able to kind of throw out our suggestions and they, they listened to them and, and it worked out great. You know, I wonder if someone has a private airport and they want to put an instrument approach procedure in. I wonder what the process would be there. Because I'm, I'm assuming that there's like a priority. So, for instance, say uh, JFK says they need a new approach and then, then somebody from the middle of this country has an approach they want to put into the airport, I guess everybody, they would have more of a priority, I would assume, to have that approach built, the JFK would. Or yeah, you, know you, you, you would think so, but I, I didn't really, unfortunately, get involved in those kind of, of decisions, but I think that would probably be a reasonable assumption, certainly. But uh, the the workload that we faced there, they were trying to get a lot, a lot, a lot of RNAV approaches in. It was a congressional mandate um, that we really put in an RNAV approach to any, any runway that had the, uh, the, you know, the obstacle evaluation and survey and such to support it. And so JFK would count as one, you know, and, uh, and Carl Valeri international would count as uh, one, <laughs> just like, so, but you brought up an interesting, an interesting thought with, uh, you said private airport. Now, um, of course there's public use private airports and then right. private use private airports, right? Uh, I did several procedures for actual private, private airports, um, you know, owned by a company or something like that. And that's actually reimburse, they reimburse the government for that. It's not cheap either, <laughs> uh, for all the, uh, development work and, and the flight inspection, and all that and ongoing maintenance. So they're actually, if you did have Carl Valeria International and you want an approach out there, you could, you could pay to have one developed if you were. If you weren't a public airport, you know, I'm wondering if uh, you did the the actual development yourself. Uh, if you could go to the FAA, I, I do know that like there's been airlines that have developed approaches. Uh, one comes to mind, mm-hmm. like in Kennedy, where I operate out of the one three left. You know, the RMP there was developed by an airline, and right. they wanted to start using that. And of course, the government said, "Well, if you're going to use that, you have to make it available to everybody else." But they actually did all the engineering and paid for it themselves. And uh, and went forward. So I wonder if it would have been cheaper to do it with the FAA or do it themselves. I, I'm I'd be curious to see what the price tag would be. Uh, I'd be wonder how that would go. You know, I did. I, although I developed the procedures and I generally had to keep track of my time, which was which was interesting for for those ones, so they could I guess charge appropriately. I never actually got to see the final bill, but I, I think it was in the multiple tens of thousands of dollars at least. So, uh, but that that's including. The flight inspection time and you know aircraft time for the you know the King Airs or Learjets or Challengers and that kind of thing that would fly. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that later. That that sounds interesting. The flight inspection stuff. I know you're not involved, but that, that'd be interesting to hear about. Yeah, sure. But Len, you had some. Yeah, I was kind of you know touching upon Carl's question when we were uh, you know when you when you mentioned putting together an instrument approach for a private facility, whether it's a corporation or a privately owned airport, uh, you know, for an individual. Were those, you know, were those GPS-based approaches or were they actual NAVAID types of approaches? 
Uh, could be either. Mostly GPS, of course, because um, you know that that's everywhere, and there's no ground equipment that's required. But uh, I did a few NDB approaches in Alaska for different, uh, you know, for different companies operating up there, oil companies and such, and they would just plant an NDB on the field and uh, and ask us to design an approach for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well- yeah, and, and that kind of leads me to my next question because I'm sure that you know GPS from a pilot's perspective, we all know how much that's changed, improved uh, our our navigating in the sky and made things more precise and more simple. And I'm curious with these precision uh, RNAV precision GPS facilities and approaches out there, did that was that does that make your job easier? Because now you don't have to deal with building, you know, a navigational aid or installing any type of uh, a beacon or antenna system on an airport. Did that did that improve or make your process any simpler? Well, we didn't have anything to really do with the infrastructure. I mean, either it was there or it wasn't, or it was coming. But you know, there aren't many VORs being installed these days, so so that was not a not not a real concern. What GPS certainly did. It was a blessing and a curse, I guess, in, in some ways, but uh, it it certainly made more approaches possible. Um, and you know, the the routing of the more flexible, some of the uh, you know, some of my you know, pulling my hair out was was about how to use a VOR that's not on the field to get someone into this airport in the mountains. That you know, nothing quite lines up right, and there's no real good way to do it. Whereas with GPS, it was it was a reasonably reasonably simple uh simple effort but the curse part comes of course well now gps can go in any any airport so there's a lot more work to do right well that of course was a really interesting conversation with russ on how to make instrument approaches next up in the hopper we have stuck mike avcast episode 69 Goodbye, Len Costa, and three places to land in your lifetime. This, of course, was a very sad moment for me to see Len leave the show, but it also was a big responsibility for me to, gosh, to to pick up the reins and and start Stuck Mike on a on a on a new venture uh, into a new year, and uh, hopefully we're we're uh, fulfilling that. Uh, some of these places to land were really cool. You'd be really surprised. Actually, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, tell you exactly what they were. I'm gonna let you listen to some of the really interesting places uh, to land. Uh, so here comes. Episode Episode 69. And actually, my really big announcement uh, today is that uh, I am formally hanging up my captain's hat and retiring the aviation industry and actually leaving the Stuck Mike Avcast uh, and, and moving on to a new chapter in my life to pursue some, some other ventures and life dreams and extended travel overseas. And so today's episode 69 is, uh, is um, sadly, excitedly, uh, it's going, is, is my last here today. Uh, in fact, the day that we are recording this, we are down in Florida. Um, we are recording this prior to April 1st, as a matter of fact. And I actually uh, just put in my letter of resignation with my employer. So that was kind of scary, but exciting at the same time. And um, kind of quickly just give you an idea of what's going on. But uh, for for the last probably five or six years, I've really wanted to sort of step away from um, not not that I hate aviation and not that I didn't like flying for the airlines, but it was a it was a goal that I wanted uh, when I was a child. I wanted to be an astronaut, and I've got an opportunity to go on a small airplane ride. And I decided that uh, pursuing my private pilot certificate was the next you know the next greatest thing. 
From there, I decided I wanted to go to college and pursue all my ratings and certificates and become an airline pilot. When I became an airline pilot, I was flying a jet, and I decided I wanted to you know, work my way up to being a captain. Now I'm an airline captain, and I feel like you know, I'm at the top of my world here, and I've enjoyed the experience, and I'm ready to move on to a new chapter in my life. And uh, actually, what's the uh, the kind of quick story of the plan that's going on here, but um, both my girlfriend and I have resigned our positions with our current employers that we've been with for about eight or nine years now, and we're moving overseas uh, to do some extended adventure traveling. Um, just, you know, spending the next few years traveling around the world, seeing the different things that we wanted to see, volunteering with different organizations that uh, we want to help out with, working on other projects that we're passionate with. And, uh, you know, be that as it may, uh, I'm, a, I'm a person of sharing. So we actually have a new website to share our travel adventures. It's called trekaboutlife.com. And you can most certainly go there. And check out, uh, basically follow along with our virtual adventure. We'll be your virtual tour guides around the world. And uh, Victoria was teasing us offline. She's like, it's April 1st. People are going to think this is a joke. And I'm actually... Um, I do not sound that way. <laughs> if I sound that way, you have to let me know. <laughs> no, you don't. Oh, my God. Oh, a, ba- a bad female impersonator. Gosh. Is, 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 is work on me, one. Yeah, you have I, to work on my voice. I, well, I'm going to study it while I'm gone. And I'm going to come back and... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, th- yeah, I I wish it was an April Fool's joke. Um, but because of my extended overseas travel, uh, it's been a very long and difficult decision. Actually, since about late last fall of 2013, or excuse me, late last summer of 2013, uh, struggling with the decision on how to how to be a part of Stuck Mike Avcast, and with the different time zones and internet connectivity. And, uh, you know, leading a business, I, I came to the realization that uh, for the benefit of you, the listener, for the benefit of the visitors, my co-hosts, um, I'm just not going to be in a position to appropriately lead. And so this announcement today is that Mr. Carl Valeri has uh, assumed control of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Of course, you know him as a co-host. He also is uh, a fantastic and prolific educator at expertaviator.com. He does talk about aviation careers at aviationcareerspodcast.com. And so, yeah, Carl, much much like the uh, CFI does the uh, verbal announcement with his flight instructor in which they um, confirm the exchange of flight controls, Mr. Carl Valeri, you have the podcast controls. I have the podcast controls. You have the controls, sir. What are three airports that you would love to go to, absolutely love to go to, or in some place in the world possibly, may not be definitively an actual airport, but some some area. Before we get started, though, I, I, I had one on my list, but I actually have to scratch it off as of this week. And uh, I've always wanted to go to South America and actually was able to land down in Peru. Uh, just recently went down to Lima, Peru, and had a whole bunch of firsts for me. I flew over Nicaragua and Panama, Colombia, and Ecuador, and then over uh, Cuba, Jamaica. And I got to fly over all those countries in one day. And that was a lot of fun just flying down to, to Central America and, uh, and also down to South America. So I kind of scratched that off the list. So now I'm going to take some time to figure out 
what the other one's going to be now that I can put on that list, but I do have some that, that are there. But to, to start us off with uh, three different airports, let's, Len, Len, what are three airports that you want to go to or have dreamed of going to? Sure. Three, uh, three airports. I think we'll start first with one that's been on my list for quite some time in uh, 2012. I spent uh, a good portion of the year in Central Coast, California, and during that time became aware, uh, well, I've actually always kind of known that this particular destination existed, but at the time I was spending uh, in Central Coast, became aware of its relative close proximity to where I was, and that is Catalina. I've always wanted to go to Catalina, and I never did have the uh, opportunity to make it out there, I, I spent a, you know, I spent a day calling around different FBOs and flight schools and trying to find out what the checkout requirements were and the costs were related to, uh, you know, having the opportunity to rent an aircraft. And because my time in Central Coast was so limited, the costs really outweighed, uh, if you will, the benefit of trying to go down there. So, I have yet to strike that one off my list, but it is still there. In fact, I've done some research. As far as I recall, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to call it like a one-way airport, but it is slightly sloped. It's kind of a smaller runway. It's on the top of a mountain. Uh, you land there. You have to get a taxi to essentially go from the top of the mountain down to the bottom, and that's pretty much where life is. The uh, the yacht clubs where all the sailboats come in, where the little town, you know, where the town is, and, and kind of where everything happens. And you know, if if I don't ever fly in there, I would wish to sail into Catalina and experience it from you know from that perspective. But Catalina's been you know first and foremost for many years, and I think I think because of the friends that I've had that have sailed there, as a matter of fact. Um, so Catalina, it is my. Uh, my second one, and I didn't even really, I've heard this name pronounced before, and then I started looking it up, and I didn't really know where it was and what it was, but it is, uh, it's the Seychelles, which is a particular island, and if I recall correctly, it's off the coast of Africa, the east coast of Africa. It's, uh, I think it's a little bit more of a high-dollar tourist area, but it's just absolutely stunning. You're talking about um, fantastic views and water, uh, you know, beautifully clear water. And uh, it's, a, it's a big resort community, but the Seychelles is one place. In fact, I had a, we had an instructor at the airline who used to fly charter out of Brazil, and they would go there a lot. And uh, he, he was telling some stories about just how amazing it was. And I was like, you know what? I think I would like to go to the Seychelles. But beyond the Seychelles... Uh, my number three, and this one is probably, in fact, I probably should have ordered it of least to most favorite, but I think the one that I'm probably most excited about is this one, number three. This one is a uh, small chain of islands. Um, I actually found a job here flying, I think it was turbine otters on floats. And this is the Maldives. In fact, I remember when we had John Ponce on the show was talking about getting a job at the down there flying the the float plane in the Maldives, and I immediately associated with that because it was like, 
you know, I didn't really know much about it, but if you if you pause the show right now and you go and Google and you 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 type in Maldives or Maldives airline or Maldives seaplane, you'll see pictures. They have pictures of like the entire fleet of turbine otters on floats sitting in front of this island. It's got to be like a dozen, dozen and a half airplanes just sitting out there in this beautifully blue water just you know docked you know a few feet from from the beach and you just look at it and you get chills and you're like yes that's a dream right there in fact in in these travels i may end up in the maldives flying a seaplane for uh you know for, for such a venture but those are yeah those are my three those are my top three um Catalina, a place that I've always wanted to go to that I was so close in my clutches when I was in California. The uh, Seychelles, which I didn't know existed till I heard uh, a, a associate of mine at the airlines speaking about it. And the Maldives, thanks to the stunning photos online. As silly as that may seem, the photos, they sold me. They sold me. But uh, yeah, those are my those are my three, Carl. Those are cool. I mean, that that sounds like a lot of fun, too, going down the Maldives. As a matter of fact, I think the Len Costa Airlines is going to be starting there in the next four mm-hmm. years or so. We're going to see Len out there on a, on some twin otters or, or just, uh, you know, who knows, even a super cub bringing some folks around doing a little bit of fishing out there. So Could be. Look forward to seeing that with the, you know, the icon possibly. We'll see you there. But uh, so those are your three. Those are pretty wonderful. Moving on, uh, Victoria. Victoria, you had uh, three airports that you've always wanted to fly to. Yeah, um, my first one is kind of funny. It's um, I just want it for the experience on final, which might be a little distracting. It's that airport in St. Martin where they go right over the beach and a lot of people get like blown into the water sometimes when the jet's so low. <laughs> and I, I just want to land there. I don't care in what or maybe even be on the beach just to get a look at that experience and uh, see it close it is to all the people sunbathing and then a jet flies you know right yeah, over you that's cool yeah so uh that's that's the one just because it would be weird and then i think many people have this dream uh, to fly in alaska and while i'd love to fly in alaska and anything my dream would be to do it in a seaplane and i'd love to just um hop between little lakes and stuff and really get to see uh, alaska from the air and um, maybe even fish off of the floats and then number three, number three was a hard one because there's a lot of places I'd like to go around the world. But number three would be any backcountry uh, strip out in the West. And I'd love to just take a cub and land and camp and find new cool places and meet new people landing at random small airports that, uh, you know, with big tundra tires and things like that. Well, that's pretty cool. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun. That, as a matter of fact, the airport in St. Martin that is really cool. The first time I ever landed there, I was like, "Wow, this is." Oh, neat. you did it! Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And actually, taking off is kind of funny because you you look out your window and you wave at the people getting ready to for you to you know have all your jet blasts blow them away. It's uh, it is it, it's it's beautiful to see. It's gorgeous on the way in, and and when you first do it, it's it's a bit distracting. Uh, but it is it, it's gorgeous. I it would be. Oh like, yeah. Oh, nice bikini. Right. Yeah right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's interesting on the takeoff too. That's that's really exciting because you actually go through these two little mountain peaks and you have to kind of turn and make sure you go through those two because uh, with our engine out procedures uh, in an airliner, of course, mm-hmm. you, that's where you have to be because 
you don't have much room uh, either side because there's a big hill in front of you. Uh, there's some really cool videos on on YouTube. So that is an awesome, awesome idea. And any backwoods country uh, strip is really a neat thing to do. There's the Recreational Aircraft uh, Association that's out there, and they have some yes. really neat uh, backwoods uh, country airports. We'll have to put a link to that uh, yeah. stuck my gav cask. Definitely uh, anywhere you can just pop up your tent. Uh, that's awesome. Okay. And instead of having an air show, just you know, going to an air show and popping a tent, go out in the middle of the woods and pop up a tent and exactly. take a ton of tires. That, that is, I think, a dream of many, many people. Many people. Someday. Well, th- those are awesome, Vic. I, I like Thank those. I like those. Um, let's see. Who's in the- Oh, Sean. Sean had some really cool ones. I, I think uh, Sean gets to see a lot of really ne- neat airports in the news and all on the desk, and I'm sure he's got some, some neat ideas as far as where he wants to go and his dreams of different airports he wants to fly to. Absolutely. Uh, one of them, um, and, and uh, Maho Beach was definitely on my list, too. As a matter of fact, I saw a video, that I, one that I'd not seen one like before, of uh, a takeoff. I've seen a, a bunch of landings there, but I don't know, Carl, you said you've been in and out. Is it common for uh, airliners to take off toward the beach or no? Because uh, I saw a video of one taken off over the beach and i'd never seen that before yeah going oh going out yes yes yeah it's it's normally the other way but it's not common it's normally the other way but yes they do take off that way that'd Uh, be a heck yeah you actually see it every so often it's uh but usually they do land them the other way uh, on the way in and Mm -hmm. uh and of course you got to get off the runway because there's not much taxiways there and what's Mm -hmm. really interesting too about that airport is they close the airport sometimes because there's not enough room on the taxiways. I've actually seen huh. corporate, as a matter of fact, they give priority to the airlines first. And I've uh, I was on the radio coming in one day, and uh, they told another corporate aircraft that they can't land because there's not enough room on the tarmac. So they had to go <laughs> up to San Juan or something like that. But oh, yeah, wow. that is a, it is a neat little place to go into. I have to go back down there. It's it's it looks like a I never overnighted there. But the, what was that name of that beach again? I can't remember. It's the beach. A Maho Beach. Maho I assume beach. it's Ma. I assume that's how it's pronounced. I've only ever seen it typed. I've never actually heard anybody say it. But I assume it's Maho. M A H O. There's that little Maho. bar there that everybody talks. Yeah, about. I'd love to go there. That's cool, man. But uh, but my three, um, St. Bart's, another one down there in the uh, Caribbean. I've always seen really cool videos of uh, landing at that one. It's It looks wild. You know, these airplanes have to dive down a hillside and then, you know, I guess not pick up too much airspeed because right at the bottom of that hill is the runway and then just beyond that is a bay. Um, and so that would be an interesting approach. And, of course, once you get down there, the uh, locale isn't too bad. Um, the visual into LaGuardia, I always thought would be cool. Um, flying over Manhattan, seeing the skyline, all that kind of thing. Uh, New York's my, my favorite city in the world and, uh, I've never had the chance to really take it in from the air. Um, so that would be a cool one. And then I'm a huge fan of one six, right? The, uh, the aviation documentary and, uh, those beautiful shots of Van Nuys airport and the, uh, the yellow cub coming in for a landing. And so I'd like to recreate that, uh, that shot one day, uh, landing there at one six, right at Van Nuys. So those are my three. And then Catalina, uh, looks amazing as well. And Van Nuys airport, that looks pretty cool. But that, <laughs> that visual to, uh, LaGuardia is, is absolutely stunning. I, I, have uh, done it a few times at night. And it's uh, it's gorgeous if you if you get a clear night with nobody around. I landed there on Thanksgiving one night, and uh, actually, some, there's a, a RNAV type of visual approach. You can actually let the airplane fly you all the way in to just about 800 feet or 600 feet above the ground. It's it's pretty exciting, um, but it's just just beautiful to see it. There's one that goes actually up the river, and then you hang a right. That's, That's cool. 
Is that the one you... I think that's the only time I did a visual. Hey, Len? Mike? I'm not sure your mic's on. Well, hello. Gosh. I mean, I'm hearing you. We heard you. I'm figuring, you know, this is all new to me. You know, it's episode 69, and I'm still figuring it, actually, it out. It actually worked because it felt like you were kicking back, legs up, drinking a drinking a brew. <laughs> but I'll I'll restart real quick from a clearer perspective. The uh, yeah, the, I think it was the one time that I did a visual approach into uh, LaGuardia. It was it. This was nighttime, and we were on with uh, we we're on with uh, New York approach. And they said exactly what you were talking about, Carl. And this was really cool. They said, head to the lady and then proceed up the river. And I was like, head to the lady. <laughs> and like, those were the, that was the terminology. And it, I don't want to say it was non-standard, but it wasn't like aim for the Statue of Liberty and then, you know, go up to, you know, make a turn up the river. But he was like, head for the lady and, and, then, and then up the river. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I could, I could do that. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was really cool. So you saw the Statue of Liberty and then you flew up the Hudson River and then we made this big, you know, sort of right-hand turn into, um, it was more of like a, just a continuous right-hand turn into final for, for the, uh, more, you know, southerly runway. I can't remember what the number is there, but it's, it's cool. It's definitely cool because I've always been just flying in and out of Newark, New Jersey. So you're talking about just a couple of miles across the street, but you know, flying up the Hudson and doing that whole procedure from that perspective was really cool. In fact, if anybody ever gets the opportunity to go fly the Hudson corridor, especially at night, it's stunning. Okay, okay that was my third one, but <laughs> I'll just say it in a minute. <laughs> I know it's not a landing, but I actually did want to say that that would be one of the things I. I don't yeah. want to do. Hope it's not in, like in a GA it's, plane. It's stunning. I did it in a Piper. Oh, it was a low winged Piper. This was like one I was brand new student pilot. I did it in a low wing Piper. We did it really late at night. We left New Hampshire, and uh, we did it really late at night. And we were going down to New York, and we hit like a snow squall, kind of in between New Hampshire and New York. Um, and it was, it was good. It was the snow and the cloud deck was above us and we weren't accumulating any, uh, you know, any snow or ice on the aircraft, but we proceeded through and then we shot down the Hudson river and we landed at JFK. And the idea was if you land at JFK airport after 10 PM, the landing fee is like, goes from 125 us dollars down to like 25 us dollars so we did this like late night cross country this just like crazy me and my instructor yeah let's totally go do this and then we get to jfk we probably spent 40 minutes taxiing the horseshoe and jfk to get from where we landed to the fbo and back again uh, after we paid the fee but the hud yeah Rick, the Hudson River corridor, and like I said, especially at night when the lights are going, and you're, you know, you're just. Part of it is they're telling you to head just. It's like the opposite direction of head to the proceed to the lady and up the river. It's like you know, you're gonna go to this bridge and you go to that bridge, and then he's like, you know, you proceed to the proceed to the Veranzano, and then I want you to come down to 500 feet AGL and head over Coney Island. And I'm like, I don't know where the heck any of this stuff is. <laughs> <laughs> so you you gotta be uh, Rick. You yeah. gotta be prepared for the visual checkpoints. That's all I'm gonna say to you. Well, I always assumed that if I you know I did it, I would do it with someone who'd done it. The, the first time would be worth it to have somebody, you know, with me. Oh, definitely. Just so you can look out the window and say, hey, you got the controls. Let me take a look <laughs> out here. <laughs> Make I'm sure there are a pilot, though, before you do that. Yeah, exactly. So, Sean, that was, uh, let's see, that was the three that you had there. You had the 
Yep, that was cool. That was awesome. The, uh, and, and, you know, it's interesting, that visual approach into LaGuardia, there's so many different types of visuals. And uh, so you go from the east to the west and from the north and the south and from all different directions you some, see some really cool, cool things. But I think doing the visual approach over the city at night, no matter what you're doing, if you're, if you're doing the corridor, it's so amazing to watch all the avenues and streets just pass by and all of a sudden you see something new and they go away and they see something new again. Hmm. Away. Just just fantastic Sean Sean you got to definitely do it one day one day some of the some of the most fun flying I ever had was I always looked forward to when we were going back to New York because it was just so stunning you never that that's like a view that day night any time of year any time of day never gets old it's always mesmerizing it's always stunning and I always loved it always loved it well that's awesome and and I guess Rick since you've You've already started in uh, the three yeah. airports. We started with number one, and I guess that was down, sure. the, down the river. Let's start with uh, your well, three. Yeah, the uh, well, the other the other one that is one that Len will, would know, which is I'd love to land at Alton Bay <laughs> at the ice runway, mm-hmm. um, and just because that's a for those of you who don't know that's a that's a uh, winter only uh, cold winter only uh, airport that pops up on Lake Winnipesaukee in uh, New Hampshire, right? And uh, um, you know, it just looks great, and I've seen I've seen a lot of videos of people doing it, and uh, it looks it looks like a cool experience and one that you know I've never I've never had. I mean, I've had there's a lot of you know there's a lot of nice flying here in New England and some cool uh, approaches. I mean, I'll, I guess I could throw a third one. This is just local, but I I still haven't gone out to Provincetown, which is a nice right on the end of Cape Cod, the very tip um, uh, airport. I, I've been there as a passenger with someone in the right seat, but I've not landed there myself. So I just threw that one in. Um, but, but yeah, the, the ice one would be great. And then the other one that, that would be new given that I'm, that I'm, uh, so East coast sea level, uh, that I've sort of been interested <laughs> in uh, because it's beautiful is Sedona. Um, ah. it just looks, it just looks amazing it, being on the, on the, on that Mesa that it's on. So there's, you know, these huge drop offs all around and mountains, you know, everywhere. And, um, you know, and so a little bit, a little, a small amount of altitude flying, you know, given, I think it's at like 5,000 feet or something. Um, because for me, it's, it's all sea level for the most part. That's where my experience is. So that would be, I think that's a, a pretty place. I've seen it enough other people landing there that I'd like to try that one. So, well, that was one of my, my favorite episodes with, uh, Len Costa, terrific, uh, person and, and we sure do miss him, but Hey, we might have him on a few uh, shows in the future. Next up in the hopper, we have, uh, episode 73, Drones, toilet paper cutting, and other aviation happiness. Uh, we discussed the incident in Tallahassee where a, a drone or an unmanned or a piloted vehicle got so close to an airliner, the airliner actually thought they had hit the aircraft. Here it is up next. Yeah, I mean, actually, Sean, you may know more about it than I do. I mean, I just know the, the basic headlines. Um, but uh, apparently uh, sometime last week, I can't remember the exact date now, um, it, uh, as it turns out, apparently this um, American Air uh, uh, regional jets on approach to Tallahassee, Florida, and um, uh, had a near miss with a drone. That's what came out, what was reported. Um, but, you know, it, 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 as everything does, when you, you start talking about drones near commercial aircraft, it, it turned into this sensational story. And it was something that was actually mentioned at a conference out in San Francisco. Um, it, it was reported to air traffic control um, and all of that stuff was going on. Um, but the, the, 
what they're trying to figure out now is if it was actually some kind of quote-unquote unmanned aircraft or if it was some hobbyist RC aircraft and at what point does one become the other and because the FA is still you know admittedly by their own admission behind in developing uh, uh, legislation for integrating unmanned aircraft into the national airspace system there really isn't that clear definition of you know at what point am I flying an RC aircraft and it becomes an unmanned aircraft and you know, should I be flying it in the approach corridor to an airport? Well, probably not. Um, and who's who's regulating that? What's going on? So, of course, the general public freaks out and they're worried that they're going to be flying, and all of a sudden, this you know, this predator <laughs> is going to you know, like run into them on final. It's, and it you know, and there's still an ongoing investigation to figure out what it was. But you know, when you when you hear you know a drone, everybody thinks about the pre- and I actually saw one news article that actually had a, the picture with the headline was a picture of a predator with missile. <laughs> all dr- like, d- d- Eric, didn't you know that all drones are predators? You didn't know that. Apparently, oh, apparently that's on. what it is. You know, it's, so there's this picture of a predator with a full like armament loadout, like that was on final in Tallahassee with this you know Piedmont jet. Anyway, so that's that's the story that's that's what happened and you know it just brings up that that continuing question that the the public is upset about the fa's upset about quite frankly the unmanned aircraft community is really upset about it because it's this huge uh, market segment that's ready to just explode pardon the pun um you know and and the fa's just will not get the legislation out and um you know every time they they set a deadline to release something it's well yeah it's going to be later it's going to be later um and you know the um maybe some people don't know the fa recently announced less than a year ago six test sites where they were going to be integrating unmanned aircraft into the national airspace system in a test environment to work on different technologies like sense and avoid which is an automated system that does what a pilot would normally do by looking around and looking for other aircraft and avoiding them but this would be an automated system so they're they're testing all of these things to see how unmanned aircraft will eventually hopefully fit into the national airspace system. So I just thought I'd bring it up because it's one of those, it is an over sensationalized issue. This is probably some, you know, some hobbyist who who built an RC aircraft in his basement and was out flying it around and it got too close to a, you know, a a jet, you know, and, and I I am, I guess maybe a little bit more sensitive to the issue just because Lakeland, Florida, where my college program is based, has an RC airstrip on the field, a nice paved, RC airstrip, and they have the this huge RC air show that they just finished um, a week or two ago um, out there. And there's you go outside and you have two traffic patterns: one with all the real airplanes, the big airplanes, and this other one with these little jets doing 200 miles an hour, but they're you know the size of a of a computer monitor or maybe a big screen TV in some cases. Those things get pretty big, um, and it's so I, I get what that's like having. Um, RC aircraft in close proximity to other airplanes, and I just thought I'd bring it up and just see, you know, where everybody else's stance was on it. Other than obviously it wasn't a predator, so they they weren't coming shoot down the Piedmont jet. Yeah, one thing that that jumps out at me uh, with respect to this one is that it was described as looking like an F four, <laughs> and um, you know, don't they use F fours as target drones down there? Yeah, they do, um, um, but not not in Tallahassee. Um, yeah, not 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 at the Tallahassee Regional Airport. No. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, not anywhere near where this thing popped up. Right, but, but that guys, that popped out at me, and I thought, huh? 
hobbyists build those airplanes that, I mean, they're, you know, what, like one-tenth scale, one-fourth yeah. scale models of, I mean, they get humongous. Um, I remember a year or so ago in Lakeland, they had a, I forgot what this, it was a gigantic 767 RC airplane. It was gigantic. And it's jet powered. It's really fast. And this, I was over on the north side of the airport in the airport terminal, and the guy was bringing it in for a landing and lost control of it and crashed on the RC airstrip. It's a huge ball of fire. I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, they get really big. And I mean, I get that, but they build them, you know, to scale size of, of larger real airplanes. So yeah, maybe it looked like an F4. Maybe it was an F4 model. That's, mm-hmm. that's highly possible. Well, when do we start calling them? Unmanned aircraft systems or, or drones. And weren't they called radio-controlled airplanes? What, what, when do we start switching over? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I think everybody's trying to figure uh, that you know, out. When, you, when, when people started putting cameras on them, for, I don't know why cameras made this delineation between just radio-controlled airplanes and drones. But for me, I've noticed it You know, when uh, there was the AR Parrot drone that came out. That's when I really started seeing people calling... RC aircraft drones as as a mainstream thing, and I'm not sure why that suddenly you know adding cameras to them did that, but that that's what I've noticed. That see, and that to me doesn't make sense. I mean, since I've been doing them and doing model rockets, they've uh, we had cameras on board and we took pictures when we shot them up, and that was before we even had GPS and we used to write on tablets. So you know, when when did we make this distinction? I mean, we were able to put little cameras in our little air, model airplanes and take pictures. Obviously, not the video, but we've tried film before. Remember the old eight millimeter film? Oh, maybe not. You guys don't remember that. But, but, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. No, I remember 8 millimeter film. And, 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 you know, How did you download that? <laughs> yeah. And had to convert that. But, yeah, you know, it, it's funny how we, we're now we're calling them drones. That's fine. If we want to call them drones, we can. But, you know, when you talked about attaching a camera to it, there's another really important thing is that, you know, if it's going to be recreational, uh, you can't use this for any commercial reasons. You can take pictures for fun. But let's say you put a YouTube video online and it's with a camera and then you put ads in your YouTube video. That's actually commercial purposes because you're making money on that. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be really careful how you do that. Uh, I, I see that also. You ever watch some of those TV shows, how they have these little drones and they go up and take pictures above a house especially, yeah. like on Home and Garden TV? Uh, I'm not sure how legal that is either. You know, it's, and, I think it's really great. There have been a, a few lawsuits filed, and I, I think someone, a judge ruled that the FAA couldn't regulate it, and then, of course, that's going to be appealed. Um, but I've got buddies who are just chomping at the bit that do real estate videos. Oh. And I think, Eric, like you mentioned, I mean, there's a whole waiting to just – it's going to be unbelievable once there's an actual framework in place to do it legally. But once once the FAA makes these rules, assuming they do so sometime in the next couple of years, there are a whole bunch of people just cannot wait to get their drones off the ground. Right. But yeah, I've got a friend who does uh, real estate also, and he asked me, he goes – you know, hey, can can you fly one of these little uh, one of these little drones with the camera on it? I'm like, probably not. I'm not good with when it's coming at me. I'm, I, I fly the airplane from the inside. I can't do it backwards. <laughs> um, and uh, he goes, yeah, you know, I've I've got these uh, this competition, and they're doing all these like they these really like multi million dollar properties, and they do these you know low pass um, flying camera shots of the house to make these really snazzy. Uh, you know, video tours and things. I'm like, you really can't do that. I mean, eventually somebody's going to find out about it. You can get, I mean, you can get in trouble. 
um, serious trouble for it. I mean, the most famous one, I guess, I think is what you were talking about, Sean, about the uh, the student at University of Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Out, was flying the drone all around and, and taking pictures and things like that. And he posted it on YouTube, and um, the FA, like, I forgot, some kind of ridiculous, huge financial penalty, and it went to court and everything, and the, the judge said, you know, you, you have no legal bounds to regulate that airspace or that operation. Uh, because the FA has been saying from one foot above the ground up, we own that air. And it, that's just – I mean you can say that, but there's no, there's no legal foundation to state that. Yes, around an, an, around an airport, yeah, you, you can have airspace that extends down to the surface. But out in the middle of nowhere, that's really not true. I mean when you look at the FA's standards on – all the precedents for airspace in areas not around airports, you know, you have the minimum altitude requirements. So if you're in a congested area, a thousand feet above the ground, if you're in a non-congested area, 500 feet above the ground. And so the judge's perspective is, you know, below that, below whatever airspace is prevalent in that area, you don't have any jurisdiction there. Um, and quite frankly, no one can figure out who has jurisdiction there. Does anyone have jurisdiction there? Um, and, that's uh, and so that that whole thing got overturned, and then of course the FA is going to appeal that. Um, but yeah, it's, it, there's just this this huge underground market, and a lot of people are already doing stuff with with this footage now. And um, you know the FA's stance has been, well, as soon as it becomes a commercial purpose, then it's you know then it's something we're going to take issue with, which is kind of a silly thing to because like Carl said, if you if you upload a video to YouTube. And it has ads in it. You allow ad-supported videos, then it, technically that's you're making money off of the video, and the FA can come after you. Which is, you know, that's that's not a very good dividing line. Because even if you're not, you know, if you're out operating near an airport with a, a parrot drone, you know, even you, know, you can you can cause some damage. I mean, there has to be some responsibility on the part of the operator to stay out of the area where you know other aircraft are operating. And I think we've seen these in the past, like uh, the radio-controlled airplanes. You know, they've had near misses, et cetera, at, air, at airports. And now just because they're becoming prevalent, we're, we're seeing them reported more often. I mean, I've, I've seen them go by. I've seen gliders go by, you know, and they can be way far up there. And they're not, they're not unmanned, but they don't have a transponder because they're not within the veil. So you're sitting there saying, gee, you know, how about those? You know, we start looking at all this, like how do we prevent collisions? And, uh, and, and the real, I think the real story here to, to me is that there's going to be more of these unmanned aircraft systems or there's going to be more of these drones out there. How are we going to prevent them from bumping into each other? causing uh, undue harm to people on the ground and also to other aircraft in the sky. So that's, that's a huge conversation that we have to have. And, you know, they're, why they, you know, I'd love to hear what you think, why they've become so popular. I personally think it's because uh, they're easier to fly than they were before. Uh, before you used to hear about them crash all the time. Now they have systems that, that you can, anybody can hover. Uh, I don't know what you feel about that. Quadricopters, they're so stable, um, and 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 the the cost of entry is so low now. I mean, you can get them for two or three hundred bucks, and they seem to be pretty durable. So if you wreck it, you don't have to start all over again. It just dust it off and throw it back up. And I think the old RC market was predominantly like you build build from a kit, so it was all from scratch. And some people just didn't want that kind of time investment. Where now you can just go get a box you come home you take the thing out and it's ready to fly immediately i think people like that you know there are some people who still 
I have several students in my program actually who are big RC enthusiasts, and they build their own air. I mean, from nothing. I mean, some of them have built their own kits even. So, and I, I think that's really neat. And but there are other people who really like just being able to pull something out of a box and go fly it immediately. And with the advent of the iPad, now it's not just the the old remote control with the two sticks. Now you're tilting and and moving the iPad and the and the you know especially the quadcopters. You know, will fly around based on how you position the iPad. I mean, that's just it's it's a neat it's a neat hobby you know to to play around with. And I mean, when we talk about playing with you know RC or you know, call them drones, whatever you want to call them. When you look at what's going on in not just the military, but in the law enforcement sectors, I mean, you can breach a house where you know there are people with guns, where before you had to send in the SWAT team and somebody might get shot. Now you can send in a, you know, a quadcopter with a camera to see what's going on in there. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a huge step forward. I think there's, and there are a lot more positive benefits like that. I mean, look at how many people die every year from, from pipeline patrol. Um, because they, you know, lose track of airspeed and get into a stall spin, um, and not to not to replace pilots. I'm not advocating that we should get rid of all the pilots and get rid of manned missions, like what you see happening predominantly in the military. I just think that there are some uses where unmanned aircraft really makes sense. Now, do I want to be out in the local practice area and see a, you know, a one fourth scale Cessna 172 fly by me without a pilot in it? No, not really. That that doesn't appeal to me very much, um, but I think they definitely have their they definitely have their uses. Yeah, they sure do. And boy, you're, we're bringing up so many good points here. We could almost do another podcast just on on drones. Oh, wait a minute, there is that. There's the uh, UAS podcast that's out there, and they they talk about drones all the time. And this this really has been blowing up. And I understand all the like what Eric just said, all the concerns amongst people. It's like, gosh. You know, we we don't want to be bumping into things up there, and and we've been flying drones successfully in uh, the military environment, but uh, you know we're in a civilian environment where it's very important to protect uh, the life and limb of everybody around us, and uh, you know there can be no collateral damage in in our environment here. We have to make sure that it does work properly, and there, there this this can go on and on, but I think that this was a great idea to bring this up because now. Uh, us as pilots, we also we look for other traffic, but now we we might want to start looking for that small thing that looks like a bird. It may not be a bird; it may be a a small drone or or radio controlled aircraft that's going to be out there. So it's something to be more vigilant about now that we're flying. Uh, <laughs> one more thing to add to what we're doing. Well, that was a surely was a interesting discussion. Up next, we have episode 74 interview with air show announcer Rob Ryder. You know, Rob Ryder, he's been flying since 1982. He's also been announcing air shows since 1978, and most of us know him from the Sporties Pilot Shops and the videos where he, he does a lot of teaching, and he's an, an amazing announcer and an amazing teacher. This hands down was one of our top picks for the best of 2014. Let's go to Episode 74. Well, Rob, you've been, uh, I'm looking at your bio here, you've been a pilot since 1982. You've been announcing air shows uh, since 1978. Um, I guess, first of all, what got you into aviation in the first place? Well, my dad soloed after World War II, and so he always liked flying. He never got his private pilot's license because he was colorblind. 
And uh, but he did solo. And so we always liked uh, airplanes. And he introduced me to Sky King's television show. And I you know, fell in love with that, with the songbird. And and uh, it's uh, just amazing to to think of the the influence that Kirby Grant, uh, the, the actor who played Sky King, had on so many people of my generation. But we, I loved him. And uh, later on uh, in my life, got to meet him. But uh, the, the aviation thing was always good. Music was uh, learned that music was always uh, around our family, too. And music kind of took over for many, many years until 1978 in July when the show that the TV show that I was working on, the Bob Braun show that was a live talk variety show, four markets, 90 minutes, Monday through Friday, uh, on in Cincinnati, Dayton, Columbus, and Indianapolis. Uh, the show went to the Dayton Air Fair, which was then three years old in 1978. And wow. Yeah. And we, and, and, I'm watching all these planes fly and go, yeah, this is really cool. And <laughs> I got invited by some of the people working there because I was a ham radio operator to help out with communications. And so as time went on, uh, I got asked to announce the balloons at 6.30 in the morning, the balloon launch. I knew nothing about balloons, but I read a little bit and I could talk. I'd, at, by that time, I'd been on the air on the show for, gosh, eight years. So being in front of a microphone was no big deal. And... Being in front of people was no big deal. It was not something that frightened me. So it was it it, it came very naturally, and they uh, eventually the folks at Dayton hired me uh, as a co local color announcer. Never made a ton of money, but but I got hired, and those are the guys who encouraged me to uh, uh, encouraged me to get involved in the air show business professionally. So in 1995, I joined the International Council of Air Shows. Uh, and in 1999, the president, the new president of that organization asked me to emcee the banquet because he had seen me on a sporties video when he was taking private pilot's license. And he said, well, here's a guy I know who is a known quantity. He can read. He can handle himself in front of a crowd. I want him to announce our closing night banquet. And things kind of uh, bloomed from there. And so it's <laughs> air shows very, have been very, very good to me. <laughs> It sounds that way. And and so, you know, going forward from that that first balloon uh, announcing experience, how did you kind of grow to to be the the I know your your business is the fifth force, the force that you are in the air show industry today? Well, it, it, I actually just kind of hung out longer and longer into the day. And a guy named Bill Bordalo, who is International Council of Air Shows member number four. And the law, who was the longtime voice of the Dayton Air Show, started giving me a little mic time. And, and we became friends. And one day he said, I got to go to a briefing, do these manufacturers demos. And I go, huh. And there I was alone on the stand and trying to fake it. And it worked out. And, and, and I will tell you that one of those early manufacturers demos that I got to talk about was something called the Bell XV-15 Tilt Rotor. Got an idea what that turned out to be? I'm guessing an Osprey? Yeah. Osprey. Nice. So wow. I saw the, I got to see this white, small Bell tilt rotor aircraft that was the prototype for what is now, uh, what, what, 300 some Ospreys in the Marine Corps and Air Force mm. and Navy. So it's, it's pretty cool. 
Very cool. And, and that's, you know, you talk about cool things that you see in this industry. I mean, you've seen, I, I would say, pretty much everything there is to see in the air show industry. Do you have kind of one experience of being up on an announcer stand and watching something flying and going, I can't believe I'm watching this? You know, one <laughs> sort of coolest experience that you've seen from up there? Well, I, I, I will. There is one that I will talk about because it, even though, uh, it's not been around for a while. There has been a rebirth of that airplane by another pilot, and that was the jet-powered Waco that Jimmy Franklin flew. It had a 450-horsepower Pratt & Whitney R985 on the front, and underneath, uh, uh, a Learjet engine. Uh, I want to say J85 or something like that. Uh, and it would climb like a scalded dog. Well, Jimmy, unfortunately, collided with Bobby Yonkin up in Canada a number of years ago. And in that airplane, they were both killed. And so that concept of that dual power plant airplane uh, has been gone until this season. And uh, now John Clatt of John Clatt Air Shows, who flies for the Air National Guard, has co connected up with Jack Link. Uh, Jack Link's uh, beef jerky, and they have the screaming Sasquatch. And one of uh, the other pilots on John's team, Jeff Bourbon, who is a U.S. national aerobatic champion, flies this thing, and it's a rebirth of that airplane. And, and it's just so amazing to see the airplane coming at you and hearing the sound of the 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 propeller, the the, the radial engine, and then as it goes by, all of a sudden you hear this. This straight turbojet screaming at you and then climbs straight up and just goes over 200 miles an hour straight up. And literally, I watched it last weekend or weekend before last, uh, Memorial Day weekend uh, is when it was, uh, at Jones Beach at the, at, the, at the Bethpage New York Air Show. I watched Jeff Bourbon climb straight up, stop the airplane in midair hang it right there on the prop, and then accelerate out of it straight up. It was <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Oh, it was all like, it's, it, it, when, when I first saw Jimmy Franklin fly his jet-powered Waco, I giggled. It was like a cartoon. It was like Looney Tunes, right? <laughs> That's all, folks. And then I saw it again, and I'm laughing. I'm turning to, 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 to Tim Jarvis, who was the announcer for it. And I'm looking and I'm interrupting him. I, was, I can't believe this. It was, so that's, uh, of all the things I've seen, those, those two airplanes uh, and the concept of the dual power, power plant airplane is something that I've always, I, I just, I think is just phenomenal. But then I've seen having flown with the Blue Angels on a couple of occasions, watching them do what they do is just as phenomenal, but in a totally different way. Rob Ryder is always fun to listen to. I really enjoyed that interview. Coming up next, we have another really interesting person. One of my favorite interviews uh, was from Stuck Mike Avcast, episode 76, What We Can Learn from Asiana Flight 214. We take this from the stance of general aviation pilots, what we can learn from Asiana Flight 214. But with us is a really special guest. We have Bill English, who was the lead accident investigator for the NTSB on the Asiana Flight 214. I conducted the interview. We uh, actually got clearance from the NTSB to have him talk on our show. Really exciting stuff. Learned a lot. Really good episode. Let's go to that next. You can see from all these findings that we had here, there was no particular one thing 
that went wrong and then suddenly did this. All this was a snowball rolling rolling downhill, getting bigger and getting bigger, and no nothing failed, nothing nothing broke, uh, but this snowball just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when at what point do you observe that it's getting out of control, and and when do you have to uh, to to step in and stop it if if you realize that that snowball is getting big enough? Interesting. Yeah, that's. Uh, that, that snowball hopefully uh, melts before it gets to an accident. It didn't in this case. It, it, you know, it probably that hap- that probably happens a lot, but we never know. Right, right. Interesting. Great stuff. Well, uh, moving on to the next thing that that they talked about this in guidance. We just got a couple more that we're going to go over and try to relate them to general aviation. Uh, it, and, and, but this is pretty fascinating too. So let's let's get a little bit into the technical side of airlines. Uh, it talks about guidance uh, for pilots on the use of flight directors during visual approaches. Uh, I know uh, in the automated aircraft that I fly. When I see the airport, a lot of times I turn everything off. I'll leave the the auto thrust on, but uh, everything else, you know, I'll, I'll be uh, looking out the window and turning the flight directors off. Uh, a lot of times, what happens in these aircraft, and, and you can talk about this on on the Boeing bill, but uh, on the on the Airbus, if you take your flight directors off, it's going to hold whatever speed, the approach speed that's actually uh, either set manually or that was uh, calculated within the flight guidance system. Uh, so you're, if, that, if those were turned off and left off, that probably would have kept that speed. But the, when you turn the, the flight directors on and say you're super high, and I've actually done this and, and got real high and it said, hey, go down, go down, what the, what the thrust starts doing, it brings it to idle. And you're pitching up, pitching up, and you're still flying straight, and you're slowing and slowing and slowing and slowing. Eventually, something's going to happen. And uh, the the usually what happens is the on like the Airbus, your uh, your thrust will come up automatically, and you're going to be going around. Uh, on the Airbus, it's a, or excuse me, on the Boeing, it uh, might be uh, slightly different. But is that is that similar to what happens on the Boeing? Yes, I wish this was a video podcast instead of an audio because I think a picture would make it easier. Uh, but I'll kind of step through technically what if if that's what you want. You want yeah, me to get sounds cool. kind of technical about this um, as to what was going on under the hood, so to speak, with with this airplane. Um, initially, before the engagement of of level change, the the airplane was in what was called vertical speed uh, mode on the the auto throttle. So on the auto auto flight, it's AFDS, autopilot flight director system. So the autopilot computer, the brain, whatever your particular manufacturer calls it, and I think actually Boeing and Garmin call it the same thing, AFCS, is sending a command to the flight director. And if you have the autopilot engaged to the servos or whatever to to drive the airplane. So it's showing you what what you want to do via the flight director or it's doing it through servos. Either one keeps that thing going. And what that's what was going on with these guys, descending at whatever it was, 1,000 feet per minute. Um, that wasn't enough. As you mentioned before, you talked about the um, – the, then they engaged a level change. They had already selected 3,000 feet in preparation for a go-around. The pilot flying realized, I'm too high. I'm, I'm here at mm, three and a half, four miles, wherever that was, and I'm way too high. I have to do something about it. And – what it looks like is he he hit level change 
thinking, well, when I do that at altitude, it, it brings me down quickly, forgetting or not realizing he had the 3,000 in there. So now the airplane was trying to climb to 3,000 feet. Everything in the system was saying, oh, you want to go to 3,000 feet at whatever the speed was, 137, 150 at the time. So the pitch of the airplane headed for 3,000 feet. The power started to come up to maintain that airspeed. He then realized, oh, this is not what I want to do. Disconnected the autopilot. So he's now disconnecting that computer from the servos and manually pulled – I'm talking with my hands here. you, You can't see me. Manually pulled the throttles back counter to the command. That then told the system, oh, you don't want this? Fine. You got it. We're going to go into this hold mode on auto throttles. So they're still working, but he basically told the auto throttles, don't do anything. I'm I'm just going to pull you to idle, and the system says, okay, I'll just stay here. With the flight director still up, the autopilot is still calculating and doing what it's doing, showing flight director commands as to how to get to 3,000 feet at 137 knots. If the airplane ever got to 137, uh, I'm sorry, to 3,000 feet, those auto throttles would have come back up and said, cool, here we are at 3,000 feet, up we go, we'll fly along. Um, But of course, they weren't going to get there because he was descending. So the system was now confused. He did two different things to tell the system, I got it, but then he didn't follow the flight director. The flight director commands are still there in front of him telling him how to get to 3,000 feet, but he's not doing it. At this point, the computer doesn't know what he wants, so it just doesn't do anything. Uh, later on, they tried to, they switched the flight directors. Had they switched them both off, both the left side and the right side, now think about how I described the autopilot system. He had disconnected the servos. He would have disconnected the flight directors. At this point, the autopilot part of the system is basically off. The auto throttle would be looking at the autopilot saying, what do I have to do to be compatible? Oh, it's off. I will go to my default mode, which would be speed, which would power up and hold 137 knots and fly along. But it never saw that because only one flight director got turned off. One remained on, still sitting there on the right side showing commands of how to get to 3,000 feet. So the system didn't know any better. It just stayed there in that hold mode all the time. That, that if, ha- if they had flicked both those flight director switches off, that would have melted the snowball. Coincidentally, but it would have melted the snowball uh, at that point. And they, they, who knows, they might not have ever have realized that it had happened. There's no reason for that flight director to be on. They weren't going to 3,000 feet. It was showing information that was not accurate. And that's one of the recommendations that we've got in here is, is changing that, um, that procedure or – uh, method that they had of cycling, you know, a flight director, leaving a flight director on that's not really showing valid information. It could have coincidentally brought that power back up. None of this changes the fact that, as you mentioned before, airspeed is right there, path is right there, and this is the other problem. We talk a lot about airspeed, but again, there were two things going wrong here. Not just airspeed was decaying, but path was decaying. So the airplane was slow, and it was very, very low. This airplane really never stalled. It never, ever actually entered a stall condition. But it was too low and in too much of a low energy condition, speed and altitude, potential and kinetic energy, to get out of that bucket and miss the seawall. And that's yet another one of the recommendations we have. 
we can talk about these factors and these findings and say, oh, you should have done this with the switches. Oh, you should have done this. But that's what gets us to the important point of a low energy situation is the problem. Let's start looking at how you get into and then how you get out of a low energy situation. Was that too technical? That was perfect. That was outstanding. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was excellent. Great explanation of that, and and flight directors in general. But the uh, so I, I I'm gonna we're gonna go back and rewind that and and give that to everybody so they can learn how how these flight directors work. But I think does that also tie into SOP because normally uh, when you're doing a visual approach, you turn those flight directors off so then the autopilot comes wakes up and says, oh, I know what you want me to do. You want me to hold speed now, but the auto thrust does. Right. That might not be the reason you do it, but that's what would happen. And one of the good reasons also would be you don't want to have guidance up there on your displays that's telling you something that isn't really what you want to do. Right. right? right. They, they had no intention of going to 3,000 feet. Why have something in front of you telling you how to get to 3,000 feet? That makes sense. Yeah. You know, but when you flick those, auto, those uh, flight directors off, I know a lot of people just follow those you know, everywhere. Uh, when you turn them off, some people get a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that, and again, we're going back to manual flight, but there's a couple of things we didn't really talk about is the fact that by manual flight, you were, we're controlling the airspeed and the altitude, like you said, and, and we, they've gone below that vertical path. And there was something that kind of disturbed me in, in uh, one of the safety meetings I had is I had a, a pilot come up to me and say, well, you know, when is it that we don't have any guidance? That's very, very, very rare. Uh, so, you know, what's what's the big deal? And I said, well, wait a minute. You know, there are times when you're pappy, and I think they had a pappy here. Uh, yes. Four, four yes. lights. The four lights were red. Red is bad, so you want to go up. And there's, you know, there's also your uh, ILS. Well, that was out of service. But there's also some markers that are on the runway, and uh, they're big white markers that you can look at, and you can aim for those points. And that is something that you can do with your eyeballs. And if you're flying an airplane, I personally feel you should try not to use any of those. You know, uh, do it on a VFR day and, and real bright out. Let the person next to you know this. Try to fly visually with nothing else. Get rid of the localizer. Get rid of the glide slope. And just look at those points on the runway. And you know what? If you start just concentrating on that, you can probably put that right, right exactly where you want to put it, uh, if with just a just a few seconds of flying, uh, just manually. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's one of the things that we we kind of as general aviation pilots can't conceive of is somebody who all day long is just looking at you know the glide slope and the localizer and just following that blindly. Uh, you would never, if it was not indicating correctly, would you fly into the ground? Well, you shouldn't. If if you see that it's failed, you should not fly that. I've had a localizer actually fail. Actually, what happened is that the tower controller turned it off and uh, was switching runways right after my, my landing. And uh, it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, where's my localizer and glide slope? And uh, he's like, oh, I thought you said you had the runway in sight. <laughs> it's like, well, no. And, and he turned it back on for me. But you have to – you just don't blindly follow it down because what happened is when he switched it to the other runway – it wasn't indicating properly for me. I was like, oh, okay, terrific. You know, now what do I do? But you have to be part of the machine. You have to be part of the program to, to actually recognize those issues. Um, and, and I think, Eric, I think we, we talked about this as far as manual and flying, et cetera. We've kind of said, hey, listen, we need to do more, more manual flying. Rick's alluded to that. 
um, I really there seems to be this common theme that keeps coming up in a lot of conversations I'm having lately. And you know, Bill, you can probably talk towards this. Are, are we really becoming those type of pilots that, that just sit back and push buttons? I am. I'm learning how to fly drones. So I know you yeah. are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you're lucky to be doing that. That's so yeah. cool, Eric yeah. and, and Bill. That that's really really neat. Uh, I, well, I, you know, you're not the only one who thinks that. I mean, if you can see, we talked about it at the board meeting. I mean, the FAA just released a, a huge study back. Uh, what was it in November or February? I, I don't remember exactly. Uh, that talked exactly about that about uh, automation over reliance and that thing. This is it's a very hot topic in the. Um, in the airline world right now, I think there was very just recently uh, was it Airbus or Yasa put out recommendations on uh, uh, on more manual flying practice and training on uh, on the Airbus. You know, one of the most highly automated airplanes there is. So, um, getting back to basics is never really a bad idea. No, I think it's terrific. And uh, you know, I, I'm in general, and I'm not talking about the people I just work with, but in general. And I speak with people from many different airlines. Uh, there's a lot of folks, maybe 50% from what I can tell, empirical evidence only, is that that are very uncomfortable turning all parts of the automation off. In other words, they'll turn the flight director off, but not the thrust. And we need to get to the point where we can turn all that off and, and just fly. It's a lot of fun, too, you know? And that's well, we yeah, you know, two folks, t- turning it off and flying and also, you know, being ahead of it when you're using it, you know, making sure that it's your tool and you're not you're just reacting to it. Well, Bill English sure is a fascinating person. Up next, we have a, another great episode where we discuss regaining your currency and we have a surprise guest on it. I'm not going to mention who it is, but this is Stuck Mike Avcast episode 77 where we discuss regaining currency. Maybe you've been out for a long time and you need to get back in the airplane. We go over a lot of different instances where we actually are trying to regain our currency. And it's, it's really neat because it's a, it's a good discussion uh, along, along all different experience levels. I think you'll really, really enjoy this one. And again, that's episode 77 up next. Hello and welcome to this episode, episode number 77 of the Stuck Mike Avcast, reporting from the other side of the planet on the island of Bali in Indonesia. I'm Len Costa. Joining me on the show today, first we have the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Carl Valeri. Welcome. How are you today, Carl? Len, it's awesome to have you back. I feel like the who here, and we've gotten the band back together. This is so cool to be talking to you. (laughs) Has anyone else kind of had that experience where you feel like you're leaning on other people or you're in airplanes all the time but it dawns on you you haven't actually taken the controls oh yeah That's we're all the pretty time. much every day <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it i was gonna try to sting carl you gotta be slower on the uptake carl so i can make fun of you <laughs> well it's true though i mean sometimes you're just sitting there honestly I, i've gone a couple weeks without even touching the controls i've been swinging gear all day uh, you know, sometimes my schedule's been that I'm like, oh gosh, you know, I haven't been able to fly for a while, and uh, you know, because I'm on reserve sometimes, and yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, now I actually have to land. How do I do this again? Oh, that's right, I got to pull back at the last minute. Uh, but yes, I mean that that's uh, and honestly, that's same thing with with small planes. I've been up in small planes like you have, uh, but I haven't done a lot of flying myself. So uh, yeah, that's that's been kind of an issue. But I'm kind of interested to hear what what uh, what you have to say is, so I I can I can figure out what I need to do. <laughs> I guess I kind of have the same issue though. I um, it's weird because I have little airplanes everywhere and people you know flying them everywhere and 
I realized the other day, actually, I was doing some recurrent training myself for, um, for an FA ride. And I realized, when was the last time I went out and did ground reference maneuvers? And I actually decided I was going to look it up. So I started looking back through my logbook. I'm embarrassed to say it, it was about 14 months ago. <laughs> So, wow. I mean, you know, because when I when I do fly, it's usually on a, some kind of evaluation. I'm either being evaluated or I'm doing an evaluation. So I, you know, to get an airplane and go out and practice maneuvers just for my own personal currency, um, it's not that I don't want to do it. I think I just forget. I get carried up with something else and I just forget to go do it. But it's it's something we need. As I start getting back in and start doing more flying, I realize. There's dust here, and I need to shake this off. Um, and so I think it's a very valid topic. I'm glad you brought it up, Victoria. Thanks. Um, when I got started up again, I realized that there were a lot of the little things I haven't done in a long time. So I knew there was going to be a lot to be missed. So I did my pre-flight, and when I finally picked up that checklist, I realized there was a lot I had missed because I was just trying to go on my memory and in a rush to just get in the air and get this done and get what I thought were going to be horrible landings over with. So I'd suggest, um, since if it's been a while, to not stress yourself out, take things step by step. Pretend you're a student again if you have to. Yeah, it can be embarrassing. You're this awesome pilot and been flying forever, but you feel like a student again. But it's okay. You know, we all hit that point. So um, I took out the checklist, and I made sure I followed everything before taxiing, running up, and taking off. And then when I did my pattern work, I did full stops and taxis backs. That way, I wasn't rushed to pull up the flaps, put the carb heat back in, and accelerate again. I would be able to land, take a second to rest, and then go over with what I could do better. And I found that just being very methodical and taking it easy on myself and not being too hard on myself really helped me get back into being in control of the plane. Well, I learned a lot from that episode as far as gain, regaining currency, and I hope you did too. Up next, we have uh, episode 80, Flying Around Volcanoes and Oxygen Deprivation and pressur- Pressurization. Uh, interesting trip around flying around volcanoes and a little technical knowledge there, but we focus this episode on oxygen deprivation. And this stems from the TBM 900 pilot that went down over Jamaica and actually started in the United States, asked for lower, and they lost communication. We talk a little bit about uh, some of the symptoms of hypoxia, common signs, and how to prevent that. A little more technical episode. I know uh, a lot of our listeners love those. So let's get right into it. Episode 80. It, it really is a fascinating topic. And uh, something with oxygen that's interesting is if you don't have it over a very short period of time, you're going to lose consciousness. And a lot of times it's insidious. And it seems like in this case, just from my observation and listening to the conversations and, uh, you know, the typical, hey, the person started slurring their speech and uh, and they wound up probably passing out. Uh, that that really shows you that this person uh, was lacking some type of oxygen, and and this is a, a real tragedy because just looking at the communications, the controllers, they gosh, you know, I, I don't think the pilot controller communication. Not saying that uh, it was wrong on one end or the or the other, but in general, uh, if 
if it was immediately declared an emergency and the person was able to descend quicker, probably would have been would have been a much better outcome. You know, having right. been in an aircraft with, I uh, have lost all pressurization in an aircraft. Uh, it really you do want to get down, and you don't you really have to ask them. You say, "Hey, we need an immediate descent." Sometimes a better thing to say besides that is is an emergency. Excuse me, an emergency descent. Yeah, it's something we we talked about yeah. uh, last night in our safety meeting. But uh, but gosh. Well, what, can I ask you, like in that situation, what do you know? Like what what various ways might you know? That something's not right. That's a great question. I know it depends, but it depends on the plane and the equipment and all that. But you know, what what's a good sign, warning sign, especially if you have the ability to throw a mask on that just to be safe, I'm gonna throw this mask on. And 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 that's an awesome question because that I, I think a lot of people they they don't go to their mask quick enough. I'll tell you one thing. If I ever hear a bang, uh-huh. I usually grab my mask. Right, because right. usually the first thing you hear is is a bang, and then you start losing pressurization. Uh, with uh, most of the aircraft that I've flown in that are pressurized, we actually have an indicator for the cabin altitude, and I take a peek at that every so often. But first, you're normally going to see some type of a warning, uh, or just a you know caution, really, and saying, "Oh, you know, there's something, there's a problem here. Wait, let me grab my mask first and, and put that on." Now, in the case of an airplane that, that has maybe just one oxygen tank or, or in case you don't have a backup oxygen, say like in the TBM, and I don't know the system very well in the TBM, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but if, if you haven't noticed there's a problem, uh, then you know you could actually wind up passing out fairly quickly. But in this yeah. case, it sounds like they, they actually knew there was a problem. There's a lot of training that goes on, uh, and, and I think and we'll get to it with Eric, because Eric wants to brief us a little bit about the high-altitude endorsements and that type of thing. But in general, and I made this point last night in our safety meeting, is that just because you have a high-altitude endorsement doesn't mean that you're going to be safe flying in a pressurized aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really need to get some really good training uh, in high altitudes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that, that kind of bugged me about this one is the fact that it, I just kept replaying in my mind uh, accidents besides, like, the Payne Stewarts and, and what was the other one? There was a recent one in Virginia uh, yeah. that was possibly the same problem. You, you kind of look back and you say, gee, you know, you know what, uh, what could we have done better? Uh, and I think a big part of it is, is, is immediately declaring that emergency. But just to give you an idea, though, uh, about the oxygen, you have an oxygen, a pressurization system, excuse me, and an oxygen bottle as a backup. But what if your backup bottle it it fails, or someone forgot to fill it. I do have a friend of mine who was flying a Learjet, and uh, he lost pressurization in his airplane, and wound up uh, turning, you know, going to his oxygen mask. Now that oxygen mask is connected to an oxygen bottle. Well, the oxygen bottle, someone didn't fill it, so he ran out of oxygen really fast. And at that point, he made a decision to point the nose down and overspeed the aircraft because he said, I'm going to go anyway. So he started going down quickly. Um, You know what actually happened to him afterwards? The biggest problem he had was uh, gastrointestinal problems afterwards Uh because of all the the gases expanding. Mm. He was in such incredible pain. Uh, It took him a while, actually, just to get over that pain and and some of the damage that was done inside him. So, you know, just talking about oxygen... 
Isn't, many, the, isn't the only answer, yeah. No, no. You have to definitely know that you have enough before you go in your backup system. You have to know that you have enough in your primary system. And and maybe, hey, bring another bring another uh, backup system. Think about this. If you look at an airliner, you know the, peop- the in the back they have flight attendants, and they have oxygen bottles. So here's all these different bottles you have in the airplane. So you kind of want to think outside the box because if you start sucking on, on your oxygen and nothing's coming out, first thing you have to figure out is, hey, what's wrong here? Why am I not getting oxygen did i not turn the oxygen mask on properly and that's sometimes most of the time is the problem i've had that happen myself where i was like oh shoot okay now i'm, I'm sucking on it properly because sometimes uh many masks i should say have different settings even on the oxygen mask uh they have a hundred percent and uh they also have where it's actually a, a setting where it actually will push air into you just think about this. When, when you lose pressurization, what many times will happen, because your, your lungs, uh, they're, I, I like to look at them like they're almost like paper mache. They'll, they'll collapse. And what a lot of systems are set up to do, especially on, on larger uh, jet aircraft, is they'll force oxygen into your lungs to reinflate your lungs so that you can start breathing again. And that's, that's really, really important. Um, but there's, but that, you know, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, the, the, the oxygen and, and this accident in general brings up a lot, of, a lot of different issues. Number one, if you have a problem with oxygen, go where there's oxygen. Go down. Go down to a level where you don't need it anymore immediately. Don't even think about whether you're going to declare an emergency or not. As a matter of fact, controllers now, uh, since the crash in uh, was it the Avianca crash in Long Island, they now can declare the emergency for you. So if you say, hey, I have an oxygen problem, you, they'll get you down quickly. You don't even have to say you have an emergency, mm-hmm. but it's best to say you have an emergency. Um, but training in general is the most right. important part I, of that. I think that thing, that um, hesitancy maybe to, you know, hassle the system sure. by saying I have an emergency, to maybe, you know, if if uh, family members are aboard, to maybe not scare them by using that word. You figure, I'm cool. I can, you know, this, this can be handled. And it, and it's a word that basically helps save you, not, not creates a problem, but, but solves a problem. And I, but I can, and I'm not faulting anyone because I know there'd be a real strong uh, impulse to not use that word if I thought there was, it was, you know, going to be okay. Even if that was misguided, I would probably hesitate. And that hesitation is, is could potentially be a problem. And I, and I realize that, you know, I think there's a powerful denial of reality there, too. Yeah. Um, and that's not just with oxygen issues. It's with any kind of potential emergency situation where a, a pilot, and it's not necessarily lack of training, but a lot of times you see it in that particular aspect, but just this can't possibly be happening. Uh, no, this is a brand new airplane. It's right. got all these fancy systems in it. I can't possibly be losing pressurization. Right. But like Carl said, when in doubt, just pick up the mask. It's a it's a yeah. five second operation that can save your life. It's, do you it's, see? Do you it's see? Such a, a simple thing. Is there a cabin pre- in most pl- cases that where a plane is pressurized? Is that visible to you that it is pressurized? Oh, that's always going to be visible to right. you. If the, if the airplane's pressurized, there's a readout. Not, of not that. only not only is there a readout, but you have to physically set it to the setting that you want the cabin altitude to be pressurized to. And then you can verify it, and you should be, like Carl said, verifying right. it at regular intervals to be sure that, that, that's, right. that it's maintaining pressure. If right. you're flying around and you're 30 minutes into a flight, and you're like, man, I'm feeling really, really tired. Yeah. Or, man, my head is killing me. Or those common warning signs that everybody learns about when you learn about hypoxia and your yeah. medical factors 
the first thing that goes through your mind is, what's my cabin pressure? Right. You look at it, you see it's not where it's set. You don't fiddle with it. You don't trouble. You just grab the mask, right. period. Just gra- get the mask first and then start trying to troubleshoot the problem. Right. And, and right. I think that was answering Rick's question, which I never answered before, is, you know, what are the indications? You know, right. how do you know there's a problem? Uh, clearly, I, clearly this, this pilot saw a problem because there's yeah. a phrase here that's quoted that's, we have an indication that's not correct in the plane, was the phrase. Right. And, and he wanted to descend, but, but whatever. I, can't, I don't know. I didn't read the details enough to know, but it almost seemed like he wanted a small amount of descent, right? He wasn't. Well, he yeah, he, he did it, want to get down to a altitude that wasn't quite as low as it should be, I think. Yeah. If you're losing pressurization, I think the first altitude is like 18,000. Right. Uh, and then down to 10,000. Right. Um, but, uh, but here, you know, this brings up a really good point. And, and to add to what uh, Eric said, the, uh, there's this checklist. I don't, I don't know if Eric or, or Rick, if you've heard of this one, the CARE checklist, which is kind of an in-flight checklist uh, no. that, that we run through. But, you know, it, it's something we we talk about a lot of times in, uh, you know, in the safety meetings, you know, we could talk about this and it's out there on the FAA website, the care checklist. And, and what that is, I can run through it really quickly. It's uh, consequences is the C for care. And, uh, you know, what are the consequences of the actions, you know, that type of thing. What, and, and after you, or the consequences of a change in my environment, you see an oxygen level that's uh, in your oxygen bottle going towards a zero, uh, you see your pressurization, your cabin is rising. And what does that mean? The altitude which is in the cabin is rising higher and higher, meaning it could have been at 8,000 feet. Now it's going to 10, 12, 13,000 feet. Uh, and then you deal with that. You say, okay, what do I need to do now? And the second part of that care checklist is your alternatives. You know, what are your alternatives? Okay, I see the consequences and I see the alternatives, the alternative being to go to a lower altitude. And that's the second part of that checklist. That's one of my alternatives is to descend. And and the third part, and this is what Eric was talking about, is the reality of the situation. What are the realities? A lot of times, and believe me, we I've done it, um, you know, I, I'm sitting in there like, you know, I I can't believe this is happening right now, and I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to pretend it's not happening. And uh, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, this is really happening. Now I have to deal with the realities. Are, is your comprehension working? You know, uh, do you have good essay? That's where the realities come in. Essay meaning situational awareness. Our ability to actually get, have perceptions cognitively processed and to have them have um, – have different type of decisions made on those those cognitive type of processes. So that's our reality. And uh, and then the other part too about that checklist is the external pressures. I mean, was there an external pressure in your situation or in this person's situation uh, where you had to get there? You needed to get to that meeting. And you didn't want to be late uh, mm-hmm. to wherever you were going. So that's that care C A R E checklist, and we'll have a link to that. So it's the consequences, alternatives, reality, and external pressures or the externalities, that type of thing. So it's a really good checklist to run through as you're flying, this care check- checklist on a constant basis. Basically, it's it's a lot of essay, and it's a lot of determining what to do next, especially with a pressurization issue, with any issue. The problem with pressurization, and I'm glad Eric answered your question, is that the, it's it's insidious. It's it's You're sitting there and you're looking. It's like, well, why, why are my fingernails turning blue? Uh, so that would be a good question there. You know, why do I feel drunk? I mean, there's a, there's a really good recording of this plus others on liveatc.net uh, where mm. they actually have 
uh, the pilots talking to the controllers and they're slurring their speech. And mm. afterwards, the people didn't even realize uh, what was going on. One thing that would be really cool, Rick, I'm not sure you've, if you've done this, is doing mm. one of those hyperbaric pressure mm. chambers mm. where they, they actually raise the altitude of the chamber. Mm. Uh, that would be really cool to do. And, Interesting. And, and I think, who was it? Was it Eric that you were talking about? You're going to possibly doing, be doing that with your... Uh, yeah, students? actually, my, uh, my college program is looking to do a field trip to go uh, play in a hyperbaric chamber. I think it's a really good experience. I've never actually been in one myself. I've, I've observed people in them. Um, never had the opportunity actually to get in one. So I'm excited to actually go and experience it. You know, you, you, you hear the stories about people who are, you know, what is two plus two and they can't, they can't solve the problem. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you think about that, it just sounds silly. But, um, I mean, I'm sure, Carl, you've been in situations where you've been hypoxic. Um, and it's, it's really, it can be a little bit alarming but that's where the training piece really comes in because if you're not properly trained, you're just going to keep right on going and the warning signs are going to get worse and worse. But unfortunately, so is your cognitive processing power. So if you don't realize the early warning signs and do something about it, then your ability to do something about it decreases over time. Right. And I think a lot of the, uh, whatever, the hypoxic training that we do um, as an industry, big picture, we like to talk a lot about rapid, rapid depressurization and, you know, time of useful consciousness. And you got to get that mask on. You got to get it on quick. And that's a lot of the way we actually conduct training when we're giving people these elusive high altitude endorsements. But what you see, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't rapid depressurizations, but the ones that happen predominantly are the slow leaks. Your Payne Stewart's this accident in Jamaica, this accident in Virginia, where it's just it's a slow, ongoing process over time, or even not in a pressurized airplane, just flying around in your 172 at 10,000 feet at night, not being aware of your body's increased need for oxygen and getting yourself in a situation that mm-hmm. you can't get yourself out of. I hope you found that interesting, learning about you know, the oxygen deprivation and how to prevent it. I know a lot of you folks don't fly those type of airplanes, but uh, it's good to know interesting information, and maybe someday uh, you're going to start using oxygen yourself. Well, that's it for our list uh, of the best shows for 2014. We love bringing this podcast to you, and we love the feedback we get. So if you get a chance, go to the Stuck Mike Avcast and, and go on there and contact us. Send us some feedback, an email, and let us know what you want to hear in 2015. Would you like to hear more live shows? Do you like those? Do you like to hear interviews? Do you like to hear the more technical topics? I know that we've gotten a lot of feedback that a lot of you folks like the technical topics, so we're going to start doing a little bit more of those. A little more almost almost like instruction. Of course, this isn't we aren't your flight instructor, but it's, it's fun to talk about these technical topics. Well, you know, this really has been an interesting year for me. Uh, taking over the reins of Stuck Mike Avcast, I absolutely love it. This project, I was a little scared at first, actually. I was like, gosh, I don't know if I could fill the, the shoes of Len Costa and realize that, no, I, I can't, but uh, I can bring it in a direction that, that fosters some kind of growth in knowledge and some entertainment. So that's what we're hoping to do is, is grow your knowledge and entertain you. Also, if you like the podcast, please do me a favor, rate us in iTunes, and also go to the stuckmikeavcast.com. In the right column there, there are all our sponsors, so make sure you click on them, tell them you heard about us from the Stuck Mike Avcast. 
It's been a wonderful year, 2014. Been some challenges, uh, but we've been able to get these episodes out on time and uh, twice monthly, the 1st and the 15th. We're going to continue that in to 2015. We really hope you've enjoyed the Stuck Mike Cavcast as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. We have a few new co-hosts. We're constantly bringing on new guests, and and we've really built a dynamic environment. And all the people, this is my favorite part, all these people that we have on the podcast, no matter what experience level, are incredibly passionate about aviation. And I know you are too. If you're sitting there thinking, gosh, this this podcast has helped me get back in aviation. I've been sitting here for, for a year, two years, and I haven't been able to get back in the airplane. You know what? We have people on this podcast that that's happened to also. Look at me. I hadn't been able to fly a single engine for almost two years, and I was able to get back into one. I was so excited about that. Rick Felty, you know, another person that he is incredibly inspiring. Uh, he gives us inspiration both through his videos and also talking about his love for aviation. He truly is, is, is a true aviator. He keeps up with all the different topics. Eric Crump, of course, another co-host. He's one that that is very involved in academics, and it's, it's wonderful having him on the, on the podcast. And he brings so much knowledge and so much from his background. Incredible some of the things that Eric has done with that school over there at the Polk State College. Of course, Victoria Zyko, Victoria brings a really interesting perspective uh, based on both her, her flying and also her interests outside of flying and Turbo the Flying Dog. Of course, we love we love to hear about Turbo the Flying Dog. Great. I hope that series is, is going to be a success, and we, we really love to plug it. By the way, that's on the side, too. If you click on the, the side column of Stuck Mike Avcast, you'll find her book, Turbo the Flying Dog. And, of course, Sean Moody. Sean, is a, he's a professional, of course, and he loves, loves bringing us aviation news. And, again, his passion, you can feel it again. And uh, here's someone who doesn't fly that as much as he'd like to. As a matter of fact, here's a, a general statement. We all don't fly as much as we'd like to. You know, I, I usually fly about 60, 80 hours a month, uh, but I still love to get up there and fly even on my days off, even though that's my day job. I love flying on my days off, and I hope you do too. You know, let me let me leave this with you for the for the new year, 2015. Here's a resolution you can you can count on. If you love aviation as much as we love aviation, I want you to do this. I want you to do one thing. It can be something small, one thing right now that will move you towards your aviation passion, no matter what that is. If it's going out and renting an airplane, maybe it's buying a book about aviation, watching a video, signing up for a membership on an, on an aviation website. Get out there and, and get into aviation again. Get that passion alive. You know, I took a three-year hiatus from, from flying airplanes, but during that whole time, I was reading magazines. I was watching videos. I was watching everything I could about aviation. It's truly a wonderful experience. Aviation brings so much to my life and so much to so many different people's lives. It really does change your life. Well, folks, I've really enjoyed 2014. I look forward to 2015. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And from myself, Carl Valeri, Rick Felty, Victoria Zyko, Eric Crump, and Sean Moody, welcome to the new year. And we hope you'll listen to the upcoming episodes of the 2015 Stuck Mike Avcast. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast. <laughs>
and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.